You're listening to the Hayek Program podcast. This podcast includes audio from lectures, interviews, and discussions from scholars and visitors of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. To learn more about the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. To learn about graduate student fellowship opportunities with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. Okay, today is uh, Wednesday, February 26, 2020. I'm Pete Betke, um, the director of the F.A. Hayek Program uh, for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at uh, Mercatus Center at George Mason University. And with me today is Professor Karen Vaughn. Karen Vaughn is Professor Emeriti from George Mason University. And uh, we are going to uh, have a conversation, continue our conversation uh, today, focusing on Karen's role as an academic entrepreneur. Um, so again, thank you for uh, being with us uh, today. Well, thanks for having me. Um, so uh, we will just throw right into it. Uh, George Mason, when you moved here, was a relatively brand brand new university, and yet within a short period of time, it developed the PhD program and then all these other things. Um, explain how that transformation <laughs> happened. Well, I could only explain it from my from, yes. from my perspective there. When I came in 1978, it was I think they had something like 6,000 students, and it was a pretty well pretty poor university. The, the, the library was pretty skimpy, and uh, they were master's programs, but no PhD program. The economics department had a master's program, but it was run specifically to give credentials to bureaucrats in Washington. There was no pretension that it was going to be a stepping stone to any other academic uh, endeavor. So my first thought when I when I joined the faculty was, well, how much can I publish and how soon can I get out of here? And, you know, I was pretty much limited to the Washington area, but I thought, well, I'll just keep at it. But much to my surprise, it kept getting better and better. And I guess the first step in it getting better and better was, I think it was 1980, 1980. And that's when I got a call from George Pearson at the Institute for Humane Studies, who said, who was telling me about an Austrian program at uh, Rutgers Newark, and how the person who was running the program, Richard Fink, was kind of upset because he wanted to expand the program and he was having trouble with the rest of the faculty. And it was there, it was kind of a conflict about what they meant by Austrian economics. He wanted to hire another Austrian. The faculty wanted to hire somebody who had written about the Austrian school, and they had actually put up some really nice man who was in the History of Economic Society, but you know, not really um, interested in, the, in as a research program. So there was some frustration there. So here I am sitting in my basement office, looking up out of this this cobwebbed, uh, <laughs> covered window with bugs coming in under the door, and I said to him almost flippantly. Well, send them here. By God, there's nothing else going on around here. You know, we can do some good. So next thing I know, I get a call from Rich Fink inviting me to come up and give a talk at uh, at Rutgers Newark. And I, I went up and I m sort of met some of the people in the program. That's where I met Don Lavoie. And uh, I talked to Rich wasn't there for some reason. He was off doing something or other. But I talked to him about it, and I said, you know, really, I may have been joking, but I wasn't really joking. It would be great to have people to talk to here. So, and I told uh, our chairman, Bill Snavely, about it. And he, you know, he was all for building the department. And, and he had, well, not Austrian sentiments. He was certainly had free market uh, um, sympathies. So he invited Rich in, and Rich did a real good job on his interview. And he got the offer, and he came in the uh, fall of 1980. And the funny thing was that I remember 
when he came to interview, he also brought three students to come and interview us to make sure it was, when one of them was Tyler Cowan, and the <laughs> other one was Dan Klein. Yeah. Yeah. But I guess I passed the test because yeah. they came. And they formed the core. They were undergraduates at the time. And they, they were, so it was just Rich Fink and me and the three, gradu and the three undergraduates. But Rich had great plans, you know, and, and he, he was talking to me about building a center. Sounded great to me because the center meant you had a lot of research activity and you had the ability to, uh, um, actually even that first year, he raised some money so we could bring in speakers, which was a brand new thing for George Mason. We brought Buchanan up that first year, as a matter of fact. Um, but the deal was he could raise the money for the center if we had two more faculty members to make it a four-person center. And I said, sounds good to me. Well, we actually had two slots open. And I talked to uh, our chairman, Bill Snavely, and he was happy to invite one more Austrian, but he thought two was way too much. So he was not going to support two. But one nice thing about Bill is he was very democratic when it came to faculty decision-making. So I knew if I could persuade the faculty, he would go along with it. And so I set out on, um, first we identified the two people that we wanted to hire. That was Don Lavoie <coughs> and Jack High. And then I went around and persuaded all my, my colleagues that we needed two rather than one, would raise money, these are good people. We got to the faculty meeting and we voted on Lavoie with no trouble. Then High came up and Snavely had another candidate, but everybody voted for High. So Snavely wasn't happy at least at that point. He changed his mind in the long run. And then, um, so we had, we sent out offers to them. Meanwhile, we decided we needed a name for this center, and I didn't want to call it the Austrian program, because I thought that was too limiting. I wanted to focus more on the research program. So, so let's call it the Center for uh, Market Processes. And I like that name because it sort of echoed the Public Choice Center. I didn't realize down the road that was going to have some real positive yeah. benefits. So, and, but we had to go to the vice president to get permission to start a center. So Rich and I went to the vice president. We got him to sign off on it. And then I could turn Rich Fink loose to raise the money to make the center work. And so in fall of 81, Jack and Don showed up. Uh, we you know, had four people. We had a center. In the meantime, um, the president had decided we needed some PhD programs. And so he, uh, he targeted the economics department as one department that should have a PhD program. And this was concerning to us, at least to me, because we had a young faculty. They were not terribly distinguished. Nobody had ever served on a dissertation committee before. And you know, I, we had no money. But it got pushed through anyway because this was going to be a way to grow the department. And it turns out that was also beneficial in the long run for two reasons. And one of them, uh, and the, probably the most important one, manifested itself a little bit later on in the year when I, met, when I had a conversation with Jim Buchanan. And I, do you want to talk about that now? Sure. Oh, yeah, okay. yeah, I mean, it's, it, yeah. it transformed. It was, all, it was all part of the, yeah. the whole thing. So here we were, this would have been in the, in December of 1981, and I was talking to Jim at a public, at, at a public choice cocktail party, I think it was at the, it was at the AEA meetings, and he said to me that he was not happy at Virginia Tech, that he didn't like the direction the department was going, and he said, and I wasn't sure whether to take him seriously, we may have to come up, come up and, and you know, join you people. I said, George Mason, you know, <laughs> really? <laughs> and he said, oh yeah, it's, things are getting bad here, things are getting bad here. So I smiled. I, I really didn't take him too seriously because I couldn't imagine, I mean, he had that great setup at VPI. I couldn't imagine him wanting to move up to George Mason. I mean, I knew the reality around here. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, uh, but I went up, I, I came back and, uh, when I went back in January, I talked to the chairman. I talked to Jim Bennett, actually, and I said, you know, Jim's, Buchanan said this to me. 
and I'm not sure if we should take it seriously or not, but I think we should talk about it. And they both agreed immediately that we should take it seriously. So the next thing you know, I was on a plane going down to, to Virginia Tech to explain to Jim why coming to George Mason would be the best thing in the world for him. <laughs> so. That's amazing. The uh, One of the real benefits of having the Buchanan uh, archives here is, is and having them be professionally processed is getting to see the documentary evidence of a lot of these moves. And um, I, I think I've mentioned this to you before, but Buchanan in those letters, uh, you know, refers to you and makes sure that everyone involved understands that you were the academic entrepreneur behind all of this, orchestrating this move. And what is one of his main concerns is, is that he didn't believe that in academia, the academic entrepreneurs get to be residual claimants. <laughs> and so he wanted to make sure that uh, you were got some kind of residual claimancy kind of idea. But it was non-pecuniary. Yeah, <laughs> in some way to do that. But it, it is a, 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 a sort of an amazing story of how an entire research center moved rather than an individual professor. And I think that's one of the unique things about George Mason. And maybe comment about that because yeah. when Rich, when you first was able to get Rich, it wasn't just Rich. It was Rich and others that mm -hmm. joined in with you. And then when Buchanan moved, it was not just Buchanan, it was Buchanan and his whole crew. And then, you know, 20 years later when Vernon Smith came, it was again Vernon Smith and his whole crew. So that must have been a very, that's a difficult sell because those are not small bets. Those are very risky bets. And especially with the Public Choice Center, because at least initially with the market processes, you know, we were a growing department. You could absorb two, pe two more people. But... The Public Choice Center was seven people. And the only reason we had any claim to those positions at all is because we were just starting the PhD program and they knew we needed more resources. I don't think the administration ever imagined it would be seven faculty members. Yeah. But after going down to Virginia Tech and I talked to Jim and and I told you know some of my selling points were, look, this is a new program. There are no entrenched interests that you have to fight with. And you will have the expertise and the experience to help us, you know, create this program. And you have a friendly faculty. And one of the things he mentioned to me that he really liked the fact that the Austrians were here. Because he thought the Austrians, while he didn't agree with everything, he thought they were interested in ideas. And for Jim, that was always like the most important thing in the world. And then he had me talk to every single ever member of the Public Choice Center to talk to them about coming. And then I went back, and from there, I went with the department chairman, and we went to talk to the president's assistant, Wade Gilley, and, and sold him on it. And then we had a meeting with the president, and he was willing to pursue it. So the next step was to bring Jim up to talk to the president. I remember we had this dinner, and everybody was very cordial and very positive, and um, George Johnson, who was the president, was a very forward-thinking person, and he knew he wanted to grow this university, and he spotted, he agreed that this was an opportunity for us. So he um, then, so then we brought everybody, everybody else individually up for interviews because they had to decide whether they wanted to come with the center or not. And sure enough, all seven people accepted the offers. And let me tell you, that negotiation wasn't easy either. There were two parts to it. One of them was salary, the other one was location. And the salaries that the, that the public choice people were making at Virginia Tech were considerably higher than the average salaries at George Mason. And that, that was a risk for Johnson. He mm -hmm. could get real, you know, real um, pushback about that. But he was, a, he was a strong guy and figured he could take it. The other thing was about where they put the center. The center had a beautiful old, um, a, a colonial house up on a hill in, in Virginia Tech, mm -hmm. and they were like an entity unto themselves. And and what did we have at George Mason then? You know, we had almost nothing. Uh, so the original plan was to put them on the fourth floor of uh, Robinson too. We were on the third floor. They were going to be on the fourth floor, and that was going to be real easy going back and forth. And we could be, and my vision was that we would, knit ourselves into one department yeah. rather than having 
little enclaves. And the plans were drawn up, shown to Jim. He loved them. Okay, we were going to do this. Even though it was less space than they had, he liked the whole proximity thing. Well, then it got to the vice president who looked at it and said, we can't do that because that would kick the business school out of that those offices. And I'm thinking, so what? You know? mm-hmm. and so I went in to argue with him, and he said, okay, you can state your case. You can argue, but it's not going to happen. So I had to go back and tell Jim. And that almost blew the whole deal because mm-hmm. he saw that as reneging on a promise. And, you know, Jim didn't. So we finally, after going back and forth, Jim said, you can give me the church. Well, that was George's Hall. Right. It had been St. George's. And so they said, okay, and they agreed to remodel the church. So then we were on on uh, yeah. on track again. But then <clears throat> the, the next stage was actually having them move in, and then they had to confront the reality of no books in the library and, you know, no budget. And So that was a difficult first year, yeah, but I we got imagine. through it. Um, the... Uh, just to, to um, I, I want to get to your department chairmanship because after this, you ascend to being the department chair, which you are. Descend. Uh, no, no. <laughs> but I, I, I actually want to point something out to you. I don't know if I shared this with you, but I came upon a letter that you wrote to John Moore in the early 1980s. Uh, you had uh, both been at a, a uh, lecture that Buchanan gave um, in honor of Warren Nutter in which he talked about what he and Nutter had in mind and what they tried to do at mm-hmm. UVA and the frustrations of that failing. And um, you write to John Moore, who was the associate director, I think, at Hoover at the time. He would later on become uh, at the NSF and some other mm-hmm. places or whatever. But you write to him talking and you compare that uh, what Buchanan was up to and Nutter were up to in the in the 50s and 60s with the environment that you're about to embark upon here in, in uh, at GMU and that this time that you're going to be able to succeed. Do you remember writing that at all? You know, you mentioned that to me. I think you sent me a copy, oh, okay. and I had forgotten completely about writing it. Yeah. I do remember, though, he was working with some foundation, so I was trying to get some money out of him yeah. to help, you know, kept get this going. But I thought, you know, but I think it was a fair thing for me to say about it because this is is what Jim had in mind here yeah. when he first moved here, that he wanted to create the kind of intellectual environment and uh, that they had at the Thomas Jefferson Center, and it would be in a university setting that would be congenial to him rather than one that was suspicious of right. him. Right. Yeah. No. It's a. It, it, it's a. I, I mean, I'm always a little suspicious in, in, uh, of these things because one time I had a conversation with Buchanan after I was looking in the archives and I was reading about a plan that he had put together when he moved to VPI because that also was a brand new PhD program when they started there and they helped build that program. Mm-hmm. And so they had this curriculum design that they were trying to do, right? Mm-hmm. And I said, oh, it must have been so exciting or anything. He said, well, I just went there to retire. <laughs> what? Yeah, because he said you got to understand how <laughs> depressed he was coming from UCLA. Oh. He goes, he goes, don't get too excited now, Pete. He goes, when I was leaving there, I was retreating to the hills. <laughs> he goes, I thought, and and he and, and if you read closely, he does say that later on, what the experience at VPI taught him was that you don't need to be in an I, an Ivy League place to have an Ivy League research yeah. program. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I always admired about him. And I always loved when he said, what you want in your, when you're going out to hire people, you don't want the third-rate person from the first-rate university. You want the first-rate person from the third-rate yeah. university. And you, you want to get, because he was always about building an intellectual environment. Yeah. Know? Okay, so now you have the, the band is together, <laughs> but you got to go on tour and, uh, <laughs> and develop this. And they put you in charge of, yeah. of this. And uh, so you have the Center for Study of Market Processes, which is now um, you're going to have Don and Jack and, and Rich for a little bit in, in residence along with yourself and, you know, some of the other people that come in, Victor Vanberg and others that yeah. through the years may, may talk a little bit about. But you're the, now the department chairman. And you have to have this brand new PhD program. You got graduate students running around, one of them being me, uh, and uh, and and all that. Talk, talk a little bit about building that, taking that opportunity, then building on it, and how you yeah. thought about that. 
Well, at first, all I thought of was not sinking. <laughs> you know, I I was made department chairman largely because of the fact that the previous chairman was someone Jim couldn't have trusted and was kind of a loose cannon, and and the and the uh, dean put wanted because I had negotiated that move, and he thought I'd be the perfect person. And Jim wanted me to be department chairman because he thought that he could trust me. But the plan initially was I would be chairman for a year, and then I would step down while, after they got their feet wet and put somebody else in charge. But that never happened. Jim liked me being chairman, and, and so here I was, and I had... I mean, really had three factions, mm -hmm. and not that they were at each other's throats or anything, but there were th three separate interests. One was the a public choice center, the people who are now going to be, you know, the new big kids on the block, and the market process center, where, where I felt stronger loyalty myself, and they were a smaller group, but they were very, very active. And then I had the old guard. And... I always felt a certain responsibility to the old guard because I persuaded them to vote in favor in favor of bringing the public choice center and I th on, and I thought it wouldn't be fair to have them vote to kill themselves, you know. So I always tried to protect those interests in ways that I thought were compatible, you know, with the other two, and that led to a certain amount of tension. And the, th the thing was, when you have an 800-pound gorilla sitting on your you know, on your doorstep, you, you can't ignore them, so, yeah. and I always, Jim was, in some respects, incredibly easy to deal with academically, but when it came to administration, not so easy to deal with, because he knew what he wanted was right, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. so, anyway, I had, it was, and that, my, the thing that, so I had that, but I also had to deal with the administration. And it turns out that was a whole lot easier than I thought it was going to be. And I guess I didn't know about these letters, Jim. Wrote. Maybe it's because he told them I was such a great uh, you know, academic entrepreneur. But I always got a very respectful hearing from them. And I also, I thought, had a very good relations with the other department chairs. And that's something economics departments don't think about very often. They don't think about how they integrate into the rest of the university. And I knew we could be vulnerable because, after all, you know, we know about the political preferences of university faculty, and I knew we were out of step with that. But I wanted us to be viewed as, an, as, as a scholarly department, a research department. You know, I didn't want them to think we were a bunch of you know, flaming right. right wingers. So I all went out of my way, I think, to be reasonable and to go along with faculty concerns where I could. And, and of course, those were the days when money was short and everybody had had <laughs> uh, reasons why they should get more. And the un and the president was kind of imperious. And so there were there were there was a lot of roiling going on there. But I always felt that I spoke up well for the department, when, you know, in the chair's meetings and with the deans, and and they they rarely they rarely thwarted anything we were really after. They didn't give us much money, but you yeah, know, gave us they gave us the permission to do what we wanted to do. Do you think that economists gratuitously insult other disciplines? Oh yeah, at, and so and so beating back that idea leads to more cooperation. And that's where market processes was especially good. Because you know Don Lavoie, he was always trying to reach out to those who didn't agree with him. Jack was yeah. always an agreeable guy. And, you know, and so they made, they, they made friends outside the department. And, I, and I, I think public choice might not have been that way because they had their very fixed ideas about what was worthwhile and what, what wasn't. wasn't. Yeah. But um, I think economists in general are really s snooty yeah. about stuff like that. So one of the funny stories about Gordon Tullock that oh. you can also find <laughs> in the, um, in, if you do some history of this. So we're all very sympathetic to Tullock in a lot mm -hmm. of ways or whatever, but um, you know, Tullock was denied promotion, as you, as you know, at UVA. Yeah. Not tenure. He was tenured, but he was denied promotion to full four times. Mm -hmm. And uh, and Bill Bright always tells a story of how 
he and Tullock were over at a uh, 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 a uh, afternoon uh, tea, mm-hmm. and uh, Tullock, uh, you know, said something obnoxious, and the dean walked, uh, you know, walked mm-hmm. away. And Bright says Tullock turns him without missing a beat and says, "You know, I can't figure out why they won't promote me." <laughs> you know, <laughs> but it's if you look in the archives, one of the things that you find is that Tullock used to go to the job talks in other departments at UVA. Mm-hmm. And attack their candidates for not doing science. Yeah. Like, what could possibly go wrong with well, that? That's probably <laughs> why, when they, when the center moved to George Mason, Jim wanted to keep Tulloch corralled. Wouldn't <laughs> want him to let him loose in the rest of the university. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. So it is, it is, it is a, a reality of yeah. that. But I, I do think that that's uh, uh, something that is probably a, an enduring lesson from your leadership was that you were able to cooperate with people outside of the department and communicate a value of scholarship that transcended discipline uh, ideas. I think that's probably a lesson everyone that's in that role should maybe think well, about. Well, I, I hope I was able to do that because that was my ambition. Yeah. I mean, I thought we it wasn't like I was, I was falsifying anything. I thought that's what we were about. You know, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of chatter that goes on in departments, you know, and we've and flippant comments. But what really came down to settling down and doing the hard work, I thought we were all really honest scholars. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because if you think about that analogy back to the UVA period, it is, um, and then the word you use in the um, in the letter to uh, Moore is Smithian. Uh-huh. that we're going to do this Smithian political economy kind of idea. And I think that there's something about that because it's uh, there's not um, it's seamless in doing law and economics, politics and economics, uh, economic history, mm-hmm. history of ideas and that kind of stuff. And I, I think, again, you know, going back to our earlier conversation, this is one of the things that you capture in Hayek's implicit uh, economics are the end. You know, we're doing, in many ways, economics um, as social theory as mm-hmm. opposed to economics as engineering, yeah, right? Right. And yeah. uh, so, and that represented such a unique opportunity to build that program that you were able to create that space for people. Um, by the way, as a graduate student from those times, my recollection of those factions is that we always used to refer to the people as the non-aligned nations <laughs> because there were graduate students that were in the program that weren't in either one of the centers too. And they they tended to always be ones that were a little bit more struggling on figuring out how to get their dissertations, you know, how to pay for this or whatever. And so we'd say, oh yeah, so-and-so has a problem because they're part of the non-aligned nations. Um, that, that may have been a, that no. might be one of your flipping comments here right now. <laughs> I do want to point out that one of the things Jim always used to say about the Austrians is that, that the Austrians had the most interesting graduate students. Yeah, Tullock's story on that was that we were we were crazy, but at least we were interesting. That's what, <laughs> okay. that's what he told us. Well. He said, "You're crazy," he says, "but at least you're interesting." Um, uh, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but you know, there's an interesting history about Bill Snavely. So the 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 Graduate Student of the Year Award at University of Virginia is the Tipton Snavely Award. Mm-hmm. And the Graduate Student Award at GMU is the William Snavely Award. That's because he's Tipton Snavely's son. Oh, right. And and uh, Tipton Snavely is who hired Buchanan. Oh, okay. So it's a very it's a very interesting thing. And in his book, Tipton Snavely has a book on the history of the University of Virginia. Department of Economics, and it ends with him turning the keys over to Buchanan and Nutter as these young men. So it's kind of mm-hmm. history comes back, right? Um, so what what were so you have the Market Press Center, you have that. Then Buchanan wins the Nobel Prize. What was that uh, like uh, for a young university to now have that kind of attention? all drawn to it oh it was glorious <laughs> especially from the president's point of view <laughs> it vindicated you know his his great gamble you yeah. know on the on public choice and we, you know we people reporters would call up and you know there were there was a focus on us that we had never had before before that you were george who you know right then all of a sudden oh you're that's where that nobel laureate is and so that i mean i think that could there was so many positive spillovers to that. 
Yeah. Not the least of which is Jim got his designated parking space. So. <laughs> <laughs> no, that is true. Uh, I mean, it is. Um, I do think that the history of GMU. So you mentioned the Market Process Center coming here uh, in 1980. Uh, that's now the Mercatus Center. And that's one of the reasons why we're doing a lot of these interviews this year is because it's our 40th anniversary, which is pretty amazing that the research program that you helped orchestrate has had a 40 year legacy and uh you know now uh you know well over uh hundreds of uh of graduates of alum in, in our master's and phd program and then if you include our other uh student programs i mean we're getting you know yeah. huge yeah. yeah so i was just wondering if you know when you think back about that does it ever like wow how did that happen well i sort of know how it happened yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, we just kept turning out the graduate students, and I, actually, this this gets back to the uh, formation of the SDAE. But I don't know if you want to skip ahead like that. No, not yet. No, okay, we'll come back. All to right, that. so we'll but, come back. To but that. Uh, so, besides George Mason, which you were department chairman for how many years? Seven. Seven. So throughout the '80s, basically, mm -hmm. is that you were a department chairman, um, and then uh, and during that period of time was when the market process center. All those guys got tenure mm -hmm. that were in that program. Um, and the Public Choice Center had grown, I guess, too, as well. Victor got added to the Public Choice Center. And... Well, I, th I think they always kept it at around seven. If they had some losses and gains, okay. maybe it got up to eight at one time. But, Vic, you know. But... Were, were you also, I don't know, if it, this is just a uh, blank, um, um, a random question, but I was just saying, like, so Henry Manny brought the law school, law and oh, economics center oh. here in the, around the same time, a little bit after Buchanan gets oh, here, Oh, yeah. Right? Well, I mean, he was – this is part of the fallout from getting the Public Choice Center is that, you know, we were – and they had uh, – George Mason had just acquired that law school a couple of years before, so there was an opportunity to build there. Yeah. And I, I'm sure – although I don't know directly, I'm sure Jim had at least had the influence in the sense that Henry Manning knew the place and knew Jim was here. Okay. Yeah. Um, all right, so uh, let's go. So besides yourself as an academic entrepreneur internal to George Mason, you also were very involved and influential in several professional associations. Um, so I want to start with History of Economic Society. Uh, were, were you, was it, in, uh, was it established before you were even out of graduate school? or No. When I was in graduate school, that's when Hope began, the History Political Economy Journal. And um, I got, it wasn't until 1975, I got a letter inviting me to a conference in, in Chicago of historians of economic thought. That's because, you know, I had written with Joseph Spangler, and he was on the organizing committee along with George Stigler, Crawford Goodwin, and one other person, Bill Allen, I think it was. And they just wanted to see if there was any, if there was enough interest to form a society, they weren't sure, and they got eighty people to come, you know, at their own on their own dime to come to this thing. So they figured there was, they could establish this new society. And then the next year was the first official meeting, and that was in Chapel Hill. And uh, I think I've got my dates wrong. I think that was seventy-five. At any rate, um, and I, you know, I became a member right from the beginning. The game, my first presentation, public presentation, I gave in that Chapel okay. Hill meeting, and and, um, and I went to everyone after that. Well, in 1978, right before I got the started here at George Mason, they were looking to start a publication, not a full-fledged journal, because they thought there wasn't enough quality research in the history of economic thought to to both feed the uh, Hope Journal and a new one. So they wanted a bulletin something where you could write up notes about the meeting, people could put in little announcements, there could be little research notes and things. And uh, they asked me to edit that. And I, of, of course, I was terribly flattered because I was just trying to get my career going then. And I, Snavely agreed to give me a little bit of help on that. So I started editing the HES Bulletin and I did that. Gosh, I did that until I became second year vice department chairman. Mm -hmm. When it just be, it started growing, we I started getting more stuff to put in, and it just became too much. But then that went on to become 
a larger version, and then it eventually became J-Het. Mm -hmm. So in a way, I was like starting at the bottom that right. led up to J-Het. And then I was, I was on the, after I was off the, the editorial board, then I got an, asked to, I don't know, let's see, I guess I was uh, vice president or something. Anyway, eventually in 1992, I think it was, they asked me to be president of the university. I, excuse me, <laughs> I wish. No, yeah. pre president <laughs> of the History of Economic Society. And I was the first female president. Of course, it was a very new society, so yeah. that's not surprising. And I ran the first, when I was president-elect, I ran the conference here at George Mason, right. figuring I could give more publicity for George Mason and introduce the place to, you know, to these, these other academics. And um, I had no help whatsoever, put the whole program together by myself, organized the meals, organized the, mm. the, uh, you know, the dorms. Uh, I think I had one assistant when everybody showed up. Um, but that went well. Then, so the next year I was president and uh, gave, I gave a presidential address. I guess it was the 10th anniversary by then and why, called Why Study the History of Economics? And I got a standing ovation. Yeah. I, I was amazed. <laughs> but I was associated with that just until, gosh, I guess the late 90s, I, I quit going to the meetings because I, I wasn't doing that work anymore. Right. And the, uh, the papers that were being presented weren't of as much interest to me. But it was a really important part of my, 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 uh, m you know, my scholarly development. So you mentioned earlier, you mentioned just now Joseph Spangler, and you mentioned earlier um, uh, Crawford Goodwin, um, but there were other people that you must have rubbed shoulders with that were Warren Samuels. Oh, and yeah. Well, maybe in, the, in those early days, there, were, there weren't concurrent sessions, so you got to know everybody. Yeah. You know, uh, um, Hollander from, you know, Warren Samuels, he was a, a really sweet guy, you know, um, Actually, I probably didn't talk to Spengler very much. He was getting on in years by then. And, and um, Mark Perlman. Would Mark have been Perlman. Oh yeah. yeah, he was he was great. Yeah. And Larry Moss. Yeah, we. Oh yeah. <laughs> he was always at the meetings, right? Yeah, yeah that's so. right. Yeah. Um, so it's it's um, and 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 it's kind of what did you? I mean, my I came to this obviously later, but I was always impressed by how open the people were that were in history mm. of economic thought. I remember even meeting Mark Blaug at that yeah. conference at Duke and, you know, the Mark Blaug that I had been introduced to through his writings would have made me be like, oh my God, he's going to be really this impossible person to deal with. And then I meet him, he's like a sweetheart. Yeah. The first time I met Mark Blaug was at a HES session. That was in uh, Pittsburgh and um, oh, can't think of his name. Anyway, the um, and he was sitting in the bar, and I was with Larry, Larry Moss, and we walked in, and Larry looked over and said, that's Mark Blaug. Let's go say hello to him. And, you know, I would have been a little diffident, but yeah. went over and introduced ourselves, and he said, he said to me, oh, you were, you're the one who wrote that calculation article. I almost fell on the floor. Yeah. That he actually read my article. Not only that, he liked it, and he yeah. told me I was right. You yeah. know, I thought this guy's great. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they were they were very open. In, well, yeah. The thing about that, I, I wrote about that in that in that presidential address. I said, but the thing that I found is because people who are in the hi in the history of economic thought are at the fringes of the profession. You know, you're not you're not uh, considered to be necessary. You're you're a flourish you know but um so you're looking for colleagues you're looking for people to talk to who people who share your interest in you know the writings of dead people you know right. and as a consequence it almost didn't matter where you came from people from different ideological perspectives different attitudes could could talk to each other and learn to talk to each other in a civil manner I mean, I was invited to um, a post-Keynesian conference to give a paper once because they liked what I was saying about Lachman and uncertainty. Yeah. You know, and you would go for a drink and you could kid about your differences. But I always found a real, a real sense of congeniality there that I appreciated. Yeah, no, it's it's um, 
It's one of the things. So you were president of AGS, yeah. um, and uh, in at George Mason, we had a strong history of economic thought yeah. because of David Levy and yeah. and others uh, that had that, um, and Don, and, mm-hmm. and also in methodology. So it made GMU's economics department different. Yeah. Because there was more people probably that cared about those kind of things. Well, I think it's when you can think about the Austrians, Austrians who wanted to do Austrian work often had to couch, couch it as as history of thought. You couldn't say, hey, here's, this is why, uh, um, let's look at uncertainty. You have to say, well, when Menger said this, he mentioned the, no, so it was a way of getting your ideas across, but, co- but couched in, a, in an historical what, uh, pre- yeah. uh, pr- progression. And so the Austrians themselves were always interested in the, and the, and then the history of their origins and then the history of 18th century and 19th centuries. And then Buchanan was, since he was a little bit odd, he would look for other people who had written stuff. And, and so it wasn't just the Austrians, but he was, he was sensitive to the history of the profession. I mean, if you don't think that economics is a totally progressive science where all truth is contained in the last journal articles, then you should be interested in what came before. And of course, none of us thought all truth was contained in the last journal article. Yeah. I don't know if I've ever told this story, but you know, Bob Tullison used to sit with the grad students and tell them what he thought their future held for them. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of my fellow classmates, they would sit down with Bob and he would say, look, you know, you, you can't make your living, you know, being this or that. So you should learn econometrics and mm-hmm. you should work with that. And I had actually co- a co-authored, you know, a paper with Tellus and mm-hmm. that Rich had me do with him my first year in grad school. So anyway, my I sit down with him for the talk, mm-hmm. just like everyone else. And he says to me, he says, uh, well, Pete, you're hopelessly an Australian economist. <laughs> yeah. Oh, he, he always liked to say yeah. that. So he said, you, you, he says, you need to, uh, you know, learn how to do that really well. But I'll never forget, he held up a copy of the JPE. And he waved it at me, and he just said, he goes, now just remember, they won't let us be theorists. <laughs> you know, like this is what he meant. Yeah. And I remember looking at him like, well, maybe they won't let you. I mean, I was a cocky yeah. kid, right? And yeah, so well, I, well, you thought we were going to win by now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 But I, I remember that conversation. All right, so um, besides uh, HES, which is a history, you also were involved in the in the most mainstream of societies uh, for Southern universities, which is the Southern Economic Association. Mm-hmm. So maybe you could talk about your involvement with that over the years. Well, I guess for one thing, I went to all. I always went to the meetings, you know, and um, I, I was I was on the board, the the board a couple of times. But I guess it was 1995. They called me and asked me if I'd be willing to serve as president, and I thought willing. You bet I'm willing. You know, I was I was really very excited about that, and so um, I think the significant thing that you might be interested in is that when I had to plan that meeting again with very little help, you know, um, and it was going to be in Orlando, Florida, at the edge of Disney World, yeah. and so I had to I had to put well, you were president, so you know you get the presidential sessions. Yeah. So I had to fill the presidential sessions. And given my oddball research, I knew historians of economic thought, and I knew Austrians, and then a few public choice people. So my presidential sessions were, he- were much more heavily weighted with Austrians and history of thought than probably in the history of the whole yeah, SCA. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, and, but, you know, they were good sessions. Well, we get to Orlando, and half the participants decide they show up for their session and then go to the, the Magic Kingdom. You know, but my Austrian history of thought sessions were packed because people who had <laughs> had no place else to go, they were really interested in the topics, and a lot of them came specifically because they saw those things, those sessions on the program, and I looked around and I saw a bunch of our former students, and I thought this is great, you know, those were, so we all kind of congregated in the, in the cocktail lounge and went into dinner and I started talking to them at their experiences and to a person they said the same thing well 
where I am, I have nobody to talk to. I mean, I'm all by myself, and the only time I get to talk to you know fellow Austrians or you know, is when I when I see them at conferences. And I thought, well, gee, we need to get them coming more often to the to the history of I mean to the uh, Southern Economic Association meeting. So I, I went home and started thinking about it, and then um, I decided to since I would ha I had some sessions to plan for the for the next. And when I was actually president, I invited them and I got Austrian sessions going. And, and everybody seemed to be all happy to get together. Well, then, if, if there's one entrepreneurial moment in my life, it was this one. I was at a board meeting, and they were moaning and groaning about how attendance was down at the SEA meetings and what were they going to do. And somebody said, well, you know, uh, the... American Economic Association has affiliates that come. Maybe we should do that. And everybody goes. And I said, I said that's a great idea. I could bring my group, you know, my Austrian group. Yeah. There was no Austrian group. I made it up. But I figured <laughs> they didn't know that. So, um, so they said, oh, okay, yeah, let's do that. And I, I've got a bunch of sessions, you know, yes. for the next one. And that's when I, you were there. I, you yeah. know, I, I arranged the dinner, and I said, "Well, do we form an association?" And they, everybody said, "Yeah, let's form it." And then we we wrote the bylaws and all the next year, and we were off and running. Yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> um, I I didn't remember the Orlando part of it, but that's so interesting because I do know from my own involvement, is that the Southern organization sends people around to look at the attendance because they want to see which sessions are getting a lot, which ones yeah. aren't. And the fact that the people, the, nor the normal economists would be off at the Disney <laughs> yeah. session, whereas the crazies were in the room, yeah. just was fortuitous <laughs> in that year. And so that's, it's a very interesting part of the story. I also think that um, I remember that uh, when I was a graduate student, Buchanan, uh, and the Public Choice Center always had their cocktail party mm -hmm. at the Southerns. It was like a, uh, there was a expectation that the Southerns is a meeting that if you're interested in being a serious economist, you needed to go to that. Yeah. And uh, so, but so anyway, so you, you served as president at the Southerns. Uh, you wrote a fantastic presidential address. Let's take a few minutes just to talk about that. <laughs> it, it's, 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 a, it's a really... Uh, it's a summary of a lot of this stuff that you mentioned earlier built into that to build about the way we do or think about policy and other kinds of things. So maybe talk a little bit about your address there. Oh, yeah. I was trying to <laughs> – I agonized over that. And I looked at the calendar and said, hmm, I've got to do this in a month. I better, <laughs> I better settle down because I really – what you know, what can you say to this group? And I started to think, well, I'm not going to hide what I think, you know. I was I was thinking about Buchanan and what should economists do, and I thought, but I thought the real issue, that's that's about the time, when was it Stiglitz was saying things like you know it's the planned economy, you know it's just a question of how much planning right. and all this, and I was thinking you know that's wrong, so, what I did was try to, what I ca I called a economic policy for an imperfect world. And I called attention to not only imperfections in the in the market, but imperfections in government and limitations of knowledge. Yeah. And and the it was, I wish I could remember. I had a rousing conclusion, something like, but you know, let let's be more humble, because there's no guarantee that we know better than the comp than all of the myriad decisions in a complicated market process of people who have knowledge. You know, yeah. and. I was never did, had no idea how that was going to be accepted. Well, one thing the room this was before they made you listen by giving you lunch. Yeah, you yeah. Know, <laughs> you, you know, <laughs> so the room was packed, and I got another standing ovation. Two in my life. Yeah, you yeah. know, well, once when I was singing, but twi <laughs> but twice in <laughs> two in my life, and I I just couldn't believe it. I thought these people agree with me. You know, yeah. that's wonderful. Maybe there is hope for the future. Yeah. You know? Well, it is a great address. When I did my own uh, Southern address, I had, I had a similar thought to you, which is twice on this, which is one, uh, I'd like to do something that someday might be read like the way we read Buchanan's, yeah. and that's a pipe dream. Uh, but then the other one was I wanted to say something that everyone in that audience could walk away with and think, but I didn't want to be like on my own. Mm -hmm. So what I did was I basically relied on every one of my 
teachers that was a previous <laughs> president of public choice society and at some point i was going to say well hey they said this so <laughs> don't blame me for saying it <laughs> hey i was guts i was gutsier than you <laughs> yes you were i was totally wimpy because i just said like if you're going to yell at me yell at karen she's the one who taught me that you know so um but sdae you've been in you know you orchestrated it you thought up the idea you uh, you know, put together people, you took a, a risk, uh, you know, on uh, having us all meet in, uh, in a place and go to uh, a dinner, which we worried that we couldn't even get enough people to go to. And now we regularly get, you know, well over 100 people, 10 sessions in, uh-huh. at the meetings. I mean, again, like when you see that, does that exceed your expectations or does it meet your, like... Oh, far exceeds. I, I mean, I knew... I I was pretty sure it was going to be a success. I just thought it would be a smaller success. But the the uh, the thing that worries me now is maybe it's almost too much of a success. There are too many concurrent sessions. And what you gain from that is that more people get on the program. What you lose from it is that cohesiveness of the of the community discussing a common problem yeah so i'm not sure i'm not in charge anymore i don't have to worry about how to right. fix it but I, I that was my that was my takeaway from the last meeting i think that might be right i also think that um as with any group as it grows it becomes more in order to grow it has to be more ecumenical but sometimes when you become ecumenical you become non-distinct and so you lose that dare to be different kind you of. You don't need one person on three different panels. Yeah. You know that would be one way to do it. You know you do you do one thing and yeah. m- maybe it's discussed in someplace else, because it's not you know it doesn't need to be what you know the only time you ever get to talk about what you're doing. You know so but yeah. I mean I have I have stepped back I am retired <laughs> I have opinions that I. Maybe not always keep to myself, but you know, I thought yeah. I think just to throw it out to consider. So, again, it's going to be a left field question at you, <laughs> um, and I didn't even tell you this in advance, but you've had a, a kind of a, a parallel careers or separate careers, not only as a scholar but also as an intellectual entrepreneur, but then also in arts, uh, <laughs> right? I mean, you you you're a, a, a singer. And, uh, and you trained in music and all that. What from your singing and learning and devoting to that would you reflect back on economics on how we, someone would approach economics and what from your economics would you use to approach in your singing? Is that, there anything there? That is from left field. And I'll, t- <laughs> and I'll tell you why. They are such different spheres. When I talk to singers and musicians, they just don't they just think differently you know uh-huh. it's i mean maybe it maybe right brain left brain is a little too um too uh too stark a contrast but i i could never hold any of these conversations with my singer friends not because they would object or anything we'd be just talking in different parallels like um my well i had one teacher i loved her but her view is when you, when you wanted something, you put it out to the universe. Uh-huh. You know? Of course, she was also very smart about her investments. So I guess and I and I think that's fine. Yeah. You know, I think that's fine. I just happen to have a brain that flips back and forth, and I have. So to that's how you live in two worlds at once. Yeah, my it's, brain flips back and forth. So you when, don't try to draw lessons from one to the other. No, because it, it's impossible. I one time said something about funding of the arts, and you know it got me nowhere. So you know, <laughs> public funding of the arts, but I, no, I just really it, it, they're like two compartments. And like when I was before I came here, I was working on a on a program I'm going to do, and I'm singing two French arias. And I was really into it, and I thought, oh, I don't feel like leaving to go and, you know, talk. Now I'm here, and I'm thinking, oh, gosh, I got more to do here, you know. <laughs> so, and that's, that's, prob- that's probably a weakness as well as a strength. Oh, Be- but it's just a strength. It's a, you know, you're able to, to live in those two worlds, and that's how you negotiate it. And I'm I love always, both of them. Yeah, I'm yeah. always trying to figure out how you can learn from the. So, like, I listened to a, a podcast called Hidden Brain. Have you ever listened to this? On, on, it's, I think I had a book, a book called Hidden Brain. And it's very interesting. It's psychology and stuff. Yeah. But one of the things they were talking about is combinatorial thinking. Mm-hmm. 
And Yo-Yo Ma, I'm probably getting the story completely wrong, uh -huh. right? Mm -hmm. But Yo-Yo Ma every summer gets musicians from all over the world, none of which are connected. And then they go to this cabin mm -hmm. and it's the only thing that they have with one of them. And they try to produce a piece of music mm -hmm. using all these different traditions. So he wants to get like the best fiddle player from like Appalachia mm -hmm. and then mm -hmm. put them in with like the best, you know, oboe player from over here. And then they somehow try to make music by, you know, mixing up the combinations and i always think in many ways this is like like what we try to do in economics is we engage in a bunch of combinatorial thinking as well mm -hmm. you know about and we're borrowing yeah. and that somehow in these different realms there's this art of of uh how do we create an environment which encourages that kind of combinatorial thinking and you're you're probably going to chuckle some but i actually think you created that here with the public choice center with the market process center and even with these other ones. And then because you were constantly being hit with different sides of the perspectives. I mean, when I was a student here, in addition to, you know, Buchanan and Tulloch and yourself and Don, you, you also had Victor who was kind of a, Victor Vanberg who was kind yeah. of a cro crossover yeah. character as were, as you, you were yourself, but also Ken, Kenneth Boulding was a Robinson yeah. professor. Yeah. And so, and then Thelma Levine yeah. was a philosophy professor and, you know, she would be involved and you would have all these different cross currents mm -hmm. and it made it so unique, which was totally different from when I was at NYU mm -hmm. where people were, is a very closed door department and they were working along in lockstep with each other on a particular project yeah. rather than cross streaming. Yeah, nobody walked in lockstep in this department. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it was. Uh, it was. Uh, 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 I mean, that that's the problem of the herding of cats. Yeah. But at the same time, sometimes the cats are very creative, right? But it's too late to bring this up, though. But still, that that description of these cross currents that that explains Liberty Fund conferences in a nutshell. You'd go there. And you'd hear perspectives from philosophy, from history, from economics, from law. And, you know, that would challenge, it should have shake up the way you thought about things. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the kind of environment you're describing. Yeah, maybe we can end with that. We, we talked about your role and key role and all these different mm -hmm. things. But maybe uh, the role that Liberty Fund played in your own, you mentioned a comment earlier where you said that, uh, if it wasn't for Liberty Fund or something like that. But uh, maybe you can talk a little bit more about your role as a discussion leader, con organizing conferences, mm -hmm. the kind of themes that you did. I I'm not sure, were you the one in charge of the conference on Thomas Sowell's Knowledge and Decisions? Yeah, that was the one, of, I think that was one of the first ones I ran. And that was a very successful one as far as I yeah. can reconstruct, right? That was, so. a, yeah, I, I think the first one I, did one on methodology. I didn't know what I was doing. That probably, but it was the first one I tried to. Sit. But I did one on uh, spontaneous, or that came later. No, knowledge and decisions was the next one, and it came because I read the book, and I read, a, I wrote a review of the book. I thought it was a fantastic book, and I thought because I mean it was Austrian themes, and it, this was new to me, and you know I thought we really needed to talk about that. Um, and it was a really successful conference. I, I couldn't tell you right now what the different session topics were because it's too long ago. But it was sort of getting my feet wet and seeing what it was like to bring people from different perspectives yeah. together. Then I ran, I went on spontaneous orders. I did a couple on religion. For a while I got interested in, you know, why is a Christian seem to be opposed to free markets? You right. know, and, and, um, and I had uh, some... See, I did two on those. I did a repeat of the spontaneous orders. Oh, I did one of Bruce Caldwell's Hayek book. I did, a, I did others. I don't just right. don't remember them all right now. But they, to me, I love being a participant more than I liked being a, the conference organizer. Okay. Because, again, there was, there would be ideas that hadn't even occurred to me. And I always I got invited to a lot of them, and I think that the reason was they considered me one of the few economists that could talk to non-economists and not get them mad, you know. Right. But I always found myself in this funny position: if I went to an um, an a conference of mostly economists, I would be saying, "Now, don't get too carried away with yourself. You have to look at this. You have to look at that. No, you're." Then I'd go to one where there weren't many economists, and I would be defending the economists because everybody else got it all 
uh, backwards. So, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. but, but still, I, I, I think I said this to you before, that if it hadn't been for Liberty Fund, I don't know what kind of career I would have had, yeah. because I got that's how I got to know a lot of important, pe- not just important people, but interesting people. I got my mind open to things I never would have thought of. And there's still to this day, I have my, quote, Liberty Fund friends. I won't have seen them like for five or six, ten years, and I'll run into them and, oh, you were at that conference. And it it really gave me a sense of academic collegiality and that I think nurtured me and, you know, and carried me forward. And it, And I guess maybe indirectly that was something I was really hoping to have, you know, foster in the department. Oh, I think that yeah. you did a great job of doing that when uh, and and especially communicating that to the to the uh, young people who were coming up about what the right attitudes are about being a, a scholar and teacher. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm forever grateful for that. When I was when I first came to graduate school, my first semester in graduate school, I took an overload to take your course. Oh, I didn't and, know that. Uh, yeah, so I took I took overloads all the way through, <laughs> so I could you know I took four courses rather than the three courses or the or the two courses. You just need two to be full time, but you could normally yeah. take three. But I always took four courses, and that enabled. But I took history of economic thought, and I and I did that for a reason because I wanted to learn and and understand that, and, and everything that I had in there exceeded my expectations about how to try to learn how to be. Because I, I wasn't, I was a, a kid. I didn't know how to do anything, and and I learned uh, that attitude from you. As I said, this curiosity uh, that you had, that you communicated to students about how to be a teacher and a scholar, mm-hmm. and I think Liberty Fund does exhibit that, right? I mean, mm-hmm. that's it. Uh, the Socratic method and the way they organize everything is mm-hmm. is really something else. And I I think um, so. Let me just end by asking you a, a rather simple question. Uh, maybe it's not simple, but it's 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 we are celebrating our 40th anniversary, and different people have different misapprehensions or misunderstandings. Is a better word about what the George Mason University Economics Department is about, what the public choice ideas are about, or what Austrian economics is about. Um, if you could just you know in a in a short way challenge the the presumptions that people have about the place and just say like this is what it really was about rather than some kind of other thing you know like we're a tar- you know a, a tool for the Reagan administration or whatever that you know if you could sort of uh, summarize what the the place is about in your in your experience what what would you put that as oh geez <laughs> I see you're 25 words or less <laughs> <laughs> well I think we've pretty much said it. Yeah, it's true. Most of us are convinced that market organization is vital to the welfare and happiness of the human race, and that, and we t- we focus our investigations on how markets work, why they which should ever work, and we also and the flip side of that came from, of course, public choice was what are the limitations of government action. So that tends to brand you with people who never think about these issues. Oh, you know, you're just free market type. Well, I always get annoyed with that because there's a reason. Does anybody ever follow up? And why do you think that way? They just, and that, I ran into that a lot. You know, from, even though I got along with people in the university, they liked me in spite, not because of, you know, what I was doing. And I was thinking, did you ever stop and think and ask? Because we have reasons. And that's to me, is the defining characteristic. It's not any preconceived notion or not any manipulating to come the, have the argument come out the way you want. What you do is you put the hard questions to yourself. And I don't think most of my colleagues ever, at least certainly in this group, avoided the hard questions. You want to say, maybe the other side's right. Let's find out. At least that's what I always did. I never accepted anything until I tried to flip it, you know, and say, okay, let's assume they're right, then what? And that's a scholarly attitude that I think I would recommend to everybody. You don't label people. You ask them why they think they do, and then you try to incorporate that into your, into your thinking. Maybe it changes your mind a little. Maybe it doesn't. 
but whatever it is, it's taking it's taking arguments seriously, taking uh, you know, taking the the pers- I mean, this is going to sound really trite and old fashioned, but the the uh, taking the pursuit of true things, you know, yeah. real things. There's a world out there. We want to know about that world. I think there's anything that we can say Mercatus stands for, or the market processes, and finding out about this real world out there and taking it seriously and thinking hard about it and not ignoring the tough questions. Well, thank you very much. I'm uh, uh, very grateful for your time and also for uh, the world that you created for people like me to exist in. So thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Hayek Program podcast. To learn more about the research, scholars, and work of the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. For more information about graduate student fellowship opportunities for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. We hope you recommend students to our programs or consider applying yourself.